1: He is not just Commander Riker. Jonathan Frakes seems to be everyone's number one. Spoiler alert, it is impossible not to like Jonathan Frakes. A terrific actor and director who has made an indelible mark on shows like Leverage, as well as all but the original Star Trek shows and films. He seems to know or has directed everyone in the Star Trek universe. He certainly was my favorite TNG director. Hope you enjoy our conversation about jazz, Superman growing up in Pennsylvania and why unexpectedly bursting into song is just part of his DNA. Breaks. Hi. Hi. <laughs>
0: How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm so glad to hear your voice.
0: It sounds like we're in a in a uh, recording booth. We're in.
1: We're in. Thanks Thomas. So the leaves are falling already, right? Where you are?
0: Well, actually there's a fabulous um, wind and rainstorm today where the white caps are f- flowing in over the bay. Ooh, ooh. There was ooh. A de- there was a great downpour, thirty-five mile per hour winds. So all the leaves are probably gonna blown off the trees by the end of this.
1: So we're still with a little smoky skies in the morning, a little, you know. But it's beautiful. It's actually beautiful here. So you'll see. Are Have you able to soon.
0: are you able to breathe? Yeah, no, you are. Thank God. So the worst of it is over, do we dare say?
1: Well, I don't know, because they just had a fire in Santa Rosa. I mean, what a time we are living in, first of all. Like, oh. I do not want to talk about it, but just the one word of, like, last night's debate. Oh, my God. I mean, I, oh, we can't. Oh, Jonathan. No, we can't. I mean, I was
0: so depressed by the end of it.
1: Oh me too. I I had to turn it off finally. I watched like the first forty-five minutes, and I was so sad. I thought I've got to cancel talking with Jonathan tomorrow because, I mean, I what had the country same feeling. are we living felt, in?
0: Oh, he was so fucking abusive. It was. Oh it, it blew my, my god. My mind.
1: It blew my mind. And then I thought, well, so what would I do if I were Biden? There were so yeah. many possibilities. And I wish he had done other things. Mm. What I've been going over this time we have come through and where we are now, it's mind blowing. And it's like, I feel I've lost the country I thought I had. You know, yeah. I mean, there's so many parts of my identity that are in question. I thought I was safe living in this house. There's fires all over people who are having the floods. There's so much going on, you know, flying planes. Am I going to get COVID? So it's a very sobering time
0: yes exactly and we feel we feel safer here and it's a very I know it's unrealistic because we're about to get on a plane and I it's it's the re-entry I'm, I'm really nervous and I'm not usually nervous I'm very nervous about the reality of going back to work of uh, the fear of being exposed the fear of testing positive I read about all these shows that are up and running and
1: I know and then anyway. someone gets positive exactly I wanted to start with doing some trades okay
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I will trade you. I have three Billy Martin cards. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I have three of them. He was I have a prick. Eight. <laughs> I know. I know. He but was one, a prick. One, one, <laughs> one or two of his cards are, are valuable. <laughs> I have a Satchel Page that I can trade. I have oh. a Johnny Logan who I didn't even know about. Johnny Logan. I mean, and, I, don't know, you know, I don't know. I don't know who Johnny
0: was, Logan is. But Satchel Page famously he, said, "Don't look back. They might be gaining on you." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> my father loved Satchel Paige.
1: Eno Slaughter. Harmon yes. Killebrew. Oh, my God. I love these names. Yes. Right. So why did your father—wait, your father loved Satchel Paige?
0: Yeah, but he didn't love baseball. He just loved that—he uh, would have loved uh, uh, Yogi Berra. When you come to a fork in the road, take it.
1: I loved Yogi Berra, and what was hilarious, when I was looking at these cards— the ones that were probably just mine are so damaged. Like, it's as if I was watching the game and bending the cards as the game was happening. <laughs> you know, like, so excited.
0: Now, were you an Indian fan?
1: Oh, God, yes. I was Cleveland Indians, Cleveland Browns, you know, Lord help us. I had
0: no idea.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. My identity was wrapped around Mudcat Grant and Minnie Minosa. Wow! Yeah, And but then what happened was—
0: Wait, you named one of your cats after Mudcat
1: I, I did, yeah.
0: We named one of our cats Bix after Bix No, Oh,
1: great name, great musician.
0: Remember when the, the taper did that play about him? Yeah. Bruce French was in it. Uh, God, what was that called? Bix and Somebody and Somebody, all three tragic jazz figures.
1: Poor Bix. He couldn't play music with the guy he idolized, Louis Armstrong, because he was black. I know. The two of them could only play in secret. That's so tragic to me.
0: That was revealed to me in the great Ken Burns, uh... I watched jazz at, at the beginning of the pandemic which I'd never seen all the way through and I couldn't I couldn't stop watching
1: Oh it. wasn't that good
0: Now I'm, I'm listening to uh Stanley Crouch's book about Charlie Parker on tape and it's spectacular He
1: just passed too Stanley Crouch Yeah Ken Burns um it's amazing to watch that thing
0: I had I had no idea you you were a, uh, a baseball fan. I thought you were busy uh, singing and dancing and entertaining all of Cuyahoga Falls.
1: Well, no, I was, but you see, you forget I had an older brother, and my dad uh-huh, was a true. humongous fan. And basically, with things like you know, what were we watching on Sundays? It was basically revolving uh-huh. around that. So, and my mother was a big fan of
0: sports. Oh, so. that's great! Yeah, we, I was. My family yeah. was not. My father was not a sports fan or a traveler, oh, and I really? became both. Yeah, it seems odd.
1: Isn't that funny? So, wait a minute. So, he—what I read about your dad was that—and this was fascinating to me—that he did his dissertation on Ring Lardner. Exactly. That And, exactly. and that blows my mind. And that's a baseball—he I mean,
0: was a famous baseball writer, which just seems bizarre.
1: I happen to have from years ago—I think it was my—maybe my, my mom's—his stories. He has a bunch of short stories on baseball. Yes. And I can't make head or tail out of them.
0: My experience with my dad was— he taught Hemingway and Faulkner and Joyce and Henry James. He loved all that, but I may have told you this story before. When he died, I got a lot of his teaching books—the ones that he had had his wonderful dog-eared and written in the columns—and and because and, and, he used to he used to reread before he taught whatever he was teaching. That you know, so so at at one point in high school, I must have said to him, "Dad, I think I'm ready to read." Ulysses, and he said to me, <laughs> "Jonathan, come on, you can't, you can't handle Ulysses." He said to me, "I can't." Believe- so he died oh, right. f- about fifteen years ago, and you can't handle Ulysses. <laughs> and uh, so I'm sitting in my little library in Maine, getting very sentimental. I'm, I'm in, I'm in the, the the chair. He was given a thing. He was, he held the uh, E. W. Fairchild chair, which allowed him to bring in writers oh, that's once, cool. once a year. He brought in. Tony oh, Morrison that's so cool and and he brought in uh, Barth and he brought yeah so so my mom and dad would have a cocktail party and this it. famous writer would be there anyway I digress so at some point I'm sitting in his chair in my little library and I take the Ulysses <laughs> which I can actually reach to right now off the shelf and I think and I look I look up to heaven and I think dad and I'm at this point I'm probably 60 and I thought, so I opened it up and I read about a page and a half and I closed it. I said, "Sorry, Dad, I still can't handle Ulysses." And I and I put it I put it back in the shelf and I and I haven't I, I haven't attempted since. I think maybe when I'm when I'm eighty, I'll give it another shot.
1: Oh, he is so dense. I mean, in fact, it's funny because during the pandemic, I was oh God. I was, can you handle no. Can you handle Ulysses? I've, I've <laughs> never done Ulysses. I've done Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man twice. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. that's the one. That's a really that's amazing one. That's the one I could get through. So why did he choose Ring Lardner, I wonder? That's a really
0: good question. I don't know. I don't have the answer.
1: This is something that Ring wrote. Here's a quote. He looked at me as if I were a side dish he hadn't ordered. And they gave each <laughs> other a smile with a future in it.
0: Those remind me of um, Damon Runyon, like those Runyonese kind of. Phrases, yeah, they, the same vibe.
1: Now, your dad—I love that the the people he taught were phenomenal. I mean, what a great gig, as far as I'm concerned. You get to teach because that's the literature he loved,
0: right? That's the literature he loved, and he also loved film, and and so he was he was the best father who ever lived. First of all, in spite of the fact that he never left the house.
1: Why do you think that was? Because he, he
0: was he di- was he was diabetic. He was scared. He was eccentric. He never drove. My mother drove or he walked what? to Lehigh, where, where yeah. He wow. never had a driver's license. He was in a horrible accident when he was young and uh, okay. never drove. So anytime we ever went anywhere, we used to go to the Cape every summer to his, these friends of my family's that I remember vividly. And my mother drove the whole way up and the whole way back. And when I was at Penn State, wow. they, they'd come to see every little shitty play I was in and they, she'd drive up and they'd drive <laughs> back. And, she, and he'd sit there reading.
1: That's amazing.
0: I know. You don't think of, the, especially in that era, in the 50s and 60s, of a man who didn't drive.
1: No, I mean, well, first of all, driving for me was the greatest liberation that happened. I mean, that was when you could go see your friends. You could, I mean, that was like unbelievable.
0: But Jack grew up, did he really want to get his license like, like as we did when we were 15 and three quarters, we got our permit. And we, as soon as we were 16, we got our license.
1: No, I don't think he did. But on the other hand, he, he wanted, he, he, well, but it makes sense. He He wanted to get it. And what the difference was, I was dying for him to get it because for me, yeah. I was going to get four hours, four hours of my life back because I would be teaching at USC. I would drive up to get him, all right, at Coldwater, then drive him back downtown to go to his violin lesson. Oh my! Wait God. in the car park for t- for an hour and a half. Right. Drive back. Everything's in rush hour. I mean, it was four hours. Yeah. So for him, when he had his first audition. For um, you know, graduate school, and you have to audition as a violinist. He, um, he I had rented a car, and we were oddly in Ohio. He, that was one of the places he was auditioning, and he, he, he got back in the car, and he says, "Oh, yeah, I'm so glad to be back in the car." And I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah, it's like being in my room."
0: Oh my god! How <laughs> telling!
1: Thought, That's an LA kid.
0: That's fantastic.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: But but now kids in high school. Brent's kid didn't even get his driver's license. I know. I can't I know. imagine not wanting to be. I know, free but
1: you see, it's different because they're remembering that they have to be had to be driven around. They were in the car. If I hadn't had to drive my Uber. kid around, well, I wouldn't have done that. If I if I didn't drive my kid around, I wouldn't know who he was to be honest. Because I would bring a snack. He wouldn't want to talk necessarily in the beginning, but when you're so bored and you've been in a car, you'll finally say. Yeah. You finally say, you know what happened today in school, you know, and so you learn things that if you were,
0: yes, hard, you
1: know. If you were home, he'd be in his room with the door closed.
0: That's exactly what happened <laughs> so, when uh, we moved. When we moved to Maine, Eliza did. She didn't like the public school, so she ended up to, at this tree hugger school called Riley, and the commute was an hour each way. And we were part of a carpool, and I remember looking forward to the drive because it was an hour, two hours <laughs> a day. And, and eventually, you'd hear all the good shit because they'd, they'd forget that you're on exactly. the, up in the drive. Yeah, I love that part of it.
1: That's the only good part of driving a car in L.A. <laughs> now, I want to go back to your dad, though, because I, I really have yeah. never talked much about this. So your dad, he clearly was a writer. He wrote poetry. He wrote books. He wrote criticism. So he was a creative writer if he's doing poetry. Did he write fiction?
0: He was a book critic for The New York Times and The Cleveland Plain Dealer.
1: Um, so did he like— <laughs> that,
0: that was your local paper, I see. <laughs>
1: that was my local paper. Your MA at Harvard, that was in theater?
0: I never went to Harvard. I never got a degree from Harvard. I worked at the Loeb Drama Center two summers with— um, I, Here's a story you may not know. I did a three-penny opera <gasps> with Christopher Reeve, Superman.
1: Oh, wow. He
0: played McKeith. Right. And I played Money Matt, one of his, one of his gang. <laughs> and I—and he was— uh, he became a friend and then we went back to New York. He was doing Love of Life, which is a soap on CBS, and he was doing a Broadway show with Catherine Hepburn, Lettuce and Lovage or something like that. Does that ring a bell?
1: Yeah, Lettuce and Love. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And uh, he asked me if I would stand in for him on the soap while they were on the road. The, uh, you know, Philadelphia, Boston, whatever, the pre-Broadway run. And then he would fly and I would give him, I would do his rehearsals on Love of Life the night before. He'd call me on the phone. I'd give him whatever notes the director had given me to give him. And then he'd go and shoot his show. So I was like his soap opera stand-in. <laughs> and then- <laughs> I love Then, that. no, it, get, it, it gets better. Um, and he invited me to his uh, opening night on Broadway, which I was thrilled to go to. I sat and then, then I went to Sardi's with, you know, the company that had been invited. But the catch was at the Sardi's table where you, as you know, you go for the opening night. I was seated between his divorced mother and father. <laughs> so I was I was his stand in on fucking love of life. Oh, God. And I was as stand I was standing. Stand in in the, in the in the seat he didn't want to sit in, and now to to reveal to reveal something even more telling. This was when I was a, obviously not a working actor. I was working for a a moving company called the Walk Up King, and his trustworthy stepbrothers. And among <laughs> the stepbrothers, besides my, myself and my old friend Tom Schuyler, was. Um, an actor named Tom Noonan, who was John Ford Noonan's brother, yeah. do you remember that? I know,
1: yeah, I know Tom yeah. Noonan. Yeah,
0: Christopher Reeve asked me if I would help move his girlfriend from D.C. to New York to an apartment in New York. So I said, "Of course." I thought this would be a great gig, make some money because we were making five bucks an hour at this job. So I either drove to Washington and drove back, or whatever it was, but I helped this young woman who ended up being with us in uh, insurrection, by the way. Um, I moved her from her apartment in Washington to an apartment in New York city. And Christopher Reeve never paid me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, stop. So, Wow.
0: Yes. And now I have one more. This is, this is the third part of the, of the Christopher Reeve appreciation story. <laughs> one of the days of rehearsal on love of life involved that, oh, This is, again, the 70s, fake snow, which was, at this point, ground up powdered fiberglass. Oh, geez. Which I was to lie in, or his character was to lie in. So I remember being at CBS uh, on 57th, all the way down there by 10th Avenue, breathing in fiberglass for Christopher Reeve while he was... Some theater, the Schubert with wow, wow. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn. Wow. And I'm getting, and I'm, uh, so those are, that's my three part Christopher Reeve story. That's something. He was also a pilot. He was a rich kid and he had a plane. And he flew me, or he asked me if I'd like to fly with him from Teterboro, which is that little airport in Jersey, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: To, to um, have lunch in Poughkeepsie. So we went to Teterboro, we flew to Poughkeepsie. We got out of the plane, and at this point, there were no cell phones. So he calls his uh, service to see if he's got any messages, and he's on the phone, and then he turns around, and he walks back to where we're having our cheeseburger and says, uh, I was just cast as Superman.
1: Wow. Wow. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So you, you definitely were—I think, I think you can think of it as being his glorified assistant. I mean, that's like— I, that, That's a
0: very nice spin. That's an excellent spin.
1: (laughs) Who just didn't get paid, but, you know, I mean, still.
0: (laughs) I was appreciated.
1: Questions that I have about you. So did you see theater when you were young? Like, did your parents take you to see theater? Yeah.
0: Yeah, Bethlehem, where I grew up, was about an hour and a half outside of uh, New York. Okay. And we would go go in pretty regularly. I remember seeing the musical version of Superman, which was— Really bizarre. What? I don't remember um, that. He, he, yeah, it was a very short-lived. Um, what else do I? Oh, West Side Story. We saw. Yeah, you know, we go. We went to see all. We went to see the big shows. It was a, it was fantastic. Yeah, I time bet. Time because my mother, my, my mother would drive us in. We'd find the cheapest <laughs> parking place we could find at the West Side. We would go to. Uh, before it was Charlie's, where we'd go to where we thought the actress would show up, and we'd have dinner, and then we'd drive back to Bethlehem.
1: For me, it was a different story. I um, We didn't have that. I would get uh, only when, like, West Side Story would come to the movie theaters. Instead, my mother would drive me to one of the first strip malls ever built in the <laughs> United States in the 60s. And there, I'm, I swear to God, this is true. And there was some... Just like it was some little store, except it had just been turned into a tiny theater. I mean, it was minuscule, minuscule. It was like a tiny studio theater. We had tickets to see Shakespeare by the Cleveland Shakespeare Company, and there were only six actors who were doing all of the plays. They were doing <laughs> Macbeth, they were doing Hamlet. <laughs> so, so, and, and on top of that, two days, we were the only two people in the audience And so we were watching these people, and at first it was just like, what is this? Because we were little, really. But then (laughs) it became amazing. (laughs) It became amazing to see people doing different characters. And I remember kind of just in some very abstract way of going, isn't that? Amazing, like that they play the king one day and then the next day they're this. Of course, each one played about 12
0: characters. (laughs) Now, is this when you got bit by the bug?
1: You know, I don't know, but both my parents were closet entertainers and they wanted to have done it. They never had the chance to do any of it. I think I was sort of fascinated by it all, the idea of changing roles and how, how it was possible to create these things in this tiny space. I think I was more thinking in that way because that kind of stuck with me. I think. Yeah, but the
0: bug never left. I mean, it took a, a a very special person to want to run a theater in Los Angeles, which you did for many years. I mean, that's an. Uh, I
1: don't know, if sp- special. Th-
0: I mean, you really have to love it with all your heart and passion and believe in it and believe in the storytelling and believe in the making of it and believe in in keeping it alive. And what you what you did to raise money for that theater always impressed me. You, your, your, thanks. Your um dedication. To theater in Los Angeles, which is not what you call a great theater town, no, I thought was is really admirable.
1: Well, you've got the most incredible people here. Actually, yeah. the best writers, some of the best actors, everything. But what's so hard is the way the city's laid out and the industry, where you keep working, you don't know when you're going to get out. Nobody can plan tickets. It's a very different thing. There is actually a thriving um, theater community that's that's quite avant-garde, quite. Pushing the, the envelope in many ways and some incredible writing, but they can barely survive. They're, they're, the, their audiences are under a hundred people. That's all they can do because of equity rules. It's a very tough town. I think I found it very discouraging. But on the other hand, I mean, I'm very proud of some of the things of that course. happened there. And I mean, it was the process. It's always been the process for me. So you know,
0: I know. Well, that's what that's that goes back to your, uh, Leco- your so Lecoq so your days as well.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely, and you—you know—it's interesting. Lecoq was always about economy and sort of the way Miles Davis always used to say, "It's what you don't play; it's yeah. the notes you don't play." There's a lot of that in the improvisation. I studied so much improvisation, and we would have to do things like we weren't allowed to use text until we could explore every possible way to say something before words absolutely were necessary. Isn't
0: that exciting, though?
1: It was. It changed my life because he synthesized ideas that I'd never I'd always wanted to put together. Like he was into architecture, he was into music, he was into all of it. Um but what was your mother like? Was she like um besides driving, a good driver?
0: She was a <laughs> wonderful.
1: She was a wonderful driver. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh. But did she have, like, did she play an instrument? What Did she no, did she like theater? No,
0: none, none, none of the above. Nobody that I know, except for, you're bringing out some great stuff. My dad's father, who I never met, who he, who abandoned him when he was very young, was a um, vaudeville guy whose vaudeville name was Fred LaFrance.
1: Oh my god, I love that. He was a vaudeville had, guy. Oh, yeah,
0: and god. he had, he had a he had a gambling problem and I've always been told that his ghost is somewhere at Santa Anita where apparently he <laughs> drank and gambled his way into wow, debauchery. Fred wow. LaFrance. So that's where Fred I got La it. It's in my blood.
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, do you, and you have no idea what his vaudeville act was.
0: No, I wish I, I wish I had quizzed my dad more. But yeah. he wouldn't have known either. He could have been yeah. lied. I mean he was he was never around.
1: My dad never wanted to talk about his dad. I mean, it was so bizarre. And so that made me want to know more. Of course. I, I don't want to do that to my kid. I really have been open any question he wants answered because I just hated not knowing stuff.
0: When we
1: were shooting um, Star Trek, I I had found, when I went home one time, a record. Maybe you know this. I mean, stop me if you've heard it. But I found this record that was in a pile of stuff that was just hidden somewhere. And I looked at it, and it was this song by this woman. And she wrote on it for Bill on his first night mission. And I couldn't play it because I didn't have a 78 record player. And I went back, and I got the sound guy to make a CD of it. And my dad came out to visit me. I always liked it when my parents came out by themselves because Mm -hmm. then they didn't get into their kind of, you know, any bickering or anything. They were just kind of present. And I said, Dad, I found this. Do you know what this is? And I started playing it, and he started crying. It was just like.
0: Wow, what was it? And this
1: was a woman who was madly in love with him, who was a pretty famous singer. All around, she used to do in the Tommy Dorsey time and everything, she played with big bands and sang and had a gorgeous voice, and my dad threw her off for my mom. And and my dad had such guilt about it, and I got the whole story from him, and it was just powerful. The things you don't know about your parents, you know?
0: Those are great stories. I got some of those from my mom before she died, and they're, you know, you could take them with you because they're unique so let me give you a situation that I think influenced me immensely in my house. We lived in a, half of a twin in Bethlehem, and it was very... It was Daniel, the, great, the late, great Daniel Frakes, my mother and dad and me. So it was a, the four of us in a very small house. But at dinner, there was a tradition where my dad would put on, you know, jazz or a musical. So it would be Billie Holiday or Sarah Vaughan oh, wow. or Billy Armstrong or Ellington, or it would be uh, Sondheim or... so. So there was always music at dinner. And that, so that's one of the reasons that I have all these uh, weird eclectic collection of song lyrics in my head. Oh, that's cool. I break out on the set or break out in front of my, my kids are just embarrassed by it. They say, how do you happen <laughs> to know that part of that song? Or what is that from? And there's there's never, I can never do like all three verses of the chorus, but I, I have snippets of things that right. must have been implanted during all those all those dinners, right? And I, and I know that the appreciation I have for jazz came from that, and and lives on to this day. But he also would sit me down in front of uh, one of his favorite movies, and one of Brent's favorite movies is uh, *Searchers*. John Ford's *The Searchers*. Yeah. He loved *The Searchers*. Wow! In spite of how he felt about John Wayne, and we and we watched *Wizard of Oz* every year. Wow! And um, one of my fondest. Fondest, fondest memories of my dad, and in connection with show business, was we, he took me, which was rare. We went to the movies in the afternoon in Bethlehem to the Boyd Theater to see Altman's *Mash*. Remember *Mash*? Oh, of
1: course I do. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, a big so, film. Big film.
0: Oh, it was a gr- and a wonderful film, and we were laughing and pounding the back of the seats, and the usher came down and ask us if we could be a little less rowdy, my father and I. And I was was so thrilled. And that matinee, which was probably 2 o'clock, rolled over, and the next showing would have been at 4 or 4.30, and my father said, do you want to stay and see it again?
1: Oh, I love that.
0: And I said, yeah. And I just got chills telling that story. Oh. So that's... uh, (laughs) So there, I was hooked. (laughs) See, that's it. That's what did it. But that's
1: it. And that's also... That's that private experience with a parent. Yeah. It's so you know it's really cool, and then also to have him misbehave with you is yes. fantastic. Wonderful. Um, did you have any of that kind of thing with your mom? It sounds like yes. she was sort of pretty much running the household in a certain way, taking care of his needs. She
0: ran the household, and she t- exactly because he didn't drive, and because he was diabetic, there was you know the food was very um, yeah. regimented. Um,
1: I mean, did she, she like jazz? Know, she got us. Did she like jazz, for example? Oh yes,
0: absolutely. She's a big, big Tony Bennett fan. There were there were artists she didn't like. She didn't like uh, you know the chicken music, the Ornette Coleman's of the world. But she loved Sinatra and Tony Bennett and all that. So there was. was
1: she didn't like Coleman. Okay.
0: Okay. <laughs> Ornette Coleman, you like Ornette Coleman?
1: I sometimes like him. Yeah. Well,
0: you're hip. You've always. Been. I'm weird. Weird and hip. And <laughs> hip.
1: So, when were you the naughtiest when you were a kid, and how did your parents oh, discipline you? God. I want to talk about disciplining with your kids and versus the way you were disciplined. Okay,
0: I've got two brutally revealing anecdotes. One, I took my mother's Plymouth Hot Six, <laughs> as we used to call it, and uh, skipped school. And I was driving down to pick up Skyler and Rich. Horn and Bill Hammerly, and we were, gonna, we were going to New York instead of going to, to high school. Ooh. And my mom figured it out, and as I was pulling away from the house on kept Circle, she ran out of the front of the house into the middle of the street and, and was screaming at me in the middle of the street, and I kept going and
1: went <gasps> to New York, Whoa. which was great. Whoa, great, the rebel.
0: Yes, and either that, I'm not sure if that inspired the next story or if it was... It's, it's a good story because I think it may have. When I got back, I think, it, I, th- I think it was unrelated, but there was one time where my father threatened to hit me. And he said, if you disrespect your mother, I'll hit you with my belt or something that he was, it was completely out of, because he was a, a pacifist. My mother, however, did spank me with a wooden spoon, which she broke on my ass at one point.
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: So this is clearly a different time because I don't know about you, but I never hit my kids. (laughs) No,
1: never. I got, um, I mean, if I was even looked stern, Jack would, you know, be so upset. Uh, But I I was spanked. I was spanked. I mean, it was more mental. Well,
0: I I used to get, yeah, my father would shame. When he shamed me, I used to wish that I was getting spanked like all the people from, the other families that I knew it would be so much simpler and, and more direct.
1: Well, I had this whole thing of because I was the only girl in the neighborhood when I was like until about seven or eight years old. There were just no girls at all, and it was only a lot of guys who were bullies. And I think my brother was bullied a lot, and so he bullied me a tremendous amount. And
0: oh, I, to get back, he because he couldn't bully them.
1: Yeah, and I I just you know I kind of have figured this out. Almost recently, you know, when I was working on the show, I think that's what happened because, I mean, uh, we had to share the same. We, we slept on the sofa for years and in this one bedroom apartment duplex thing. And so he and I were on the couch at night. They would put the couch down and, and uh, it, it was a fight every night because he was like he didn't want me in the bed. He, he didn't want me alive, basically. And we it was tough. And I think that's one of the reasons. This was your
0: big brother, the lawyer?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't even remember a lot of this. I I was, we used to be left alone and he was my babysitter when I was like as young as three. There was a woman who lived in the other duplex. We were put to bed and we were supposed to be sleeping, but he would get me up and have us do these games that would terrorize me. Now he totally is a great brother. He's, he's loyal. He's, he's helped me every time I've needed help. But when we were kids, it was a really different story and I know it was because he was bullied so much outside.
0: How much older than him than you was he?
1: He's like uh two two and a half years older. Yeah. Two and and it was it was just close enough.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Now you were older and your brother Daniel, who I never met, sadly.
0: He was two, exactly, two and a half. It was the same same uh Thing about two and a half years.
1: So what? So how? What kind of an older brother were you?
0: He was one of my f- uh, favorite people. He and I lived together actually in New York, and it turns out he was not cut out for New York, and he went back. Always went back to uh, to bartend back in, in Bethlehem. What were his dreams? He was the he was the cu- he, he was he was the cute one. He was he was sort of like David Bowie. Wow. He was, uh, yeah, he was androgynous. He was a, a avid reader he dropped out of four colleges. Wow. He was a fascinating guy. He married the same married the same woman twice and divorced her twice. And then he died of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. And uh and that was it, you know. So it was uh he was a complicated, wonderful, sweet, lovable, funny. I I had Adore
1: Daniel. No, oh, I wish I, I I had known him. I mean, one of his one, one of those... his best
0: qualities was that he really didn't give a shit about any of my success, which I thought was quite wonderful. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, that's great because it kind of puts a real spin on things. Yeah, yeah. But well, but you had something real with him, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, now I'm thinking about jazz, and I I've always been into jazz, actually, and I think a lot of that happened when I went to Paris.
0: Oh, I'm sure because.
1: They were huge in jazz, so it was everywhere.
0: And still are.
1: Absolutely. It's interesting. I heard you say in some con that you wanted, if you would like to have dinner with Thelonious Monk, right? Right. Did you say that? I I did.
0: Or Duke Ellington. I heard a great quote about Thelonious Monk the other day, or I read a great quote that said, uh, the piano ain't got no wrong notes. That's what he said.
1: I mean, he's amazing. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. But I don't know what I would talk about with him at dinner because he's I've I've never seen any like video of him actually no. talking a lot.
0: Yeah. I don't know either. I th- I probably didn't think that answer through. You probably <laughs> <laughs>
1: You would probably you know, you'd be telling the Christopher Reeves stories.
0: <laughs> I would tell the Christopher Reeves story. I said, how about a song now? How about around midnight? <laughs>
1: I mean, it, I think
0: that's the dinner I wanted to have. I wanted to sit <laughs> at the piano while he played.
1: Exactly. I think my hero out of all of them, it 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 really is Louis Armstrong. And some of my um, some of my black friends really are like, really, yeah, you know, because they feel he sold out and did a whitey thing. Um, some some people do, and I understand that.
0: Yeah, but he he yeah, but he 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 didn't. He he knew how to play it all. If if you believe. And Burns and everything else that yeah. we know about Louis Armstrong, I think he he may have been smarter than all of us. Yeah.
1: Well, I think to me, you have Duke Ellington, who I adore as well. Yeah. But he had a powerful, a powerful protector in his mother. Okay? Yes. You had, um, Monk had several women protecting him and caring for him. Mm-hmm. Nellie and Nika. Okay? Two women who really, their whole job was to take care of him. Um. Louis had like no one, you know. His his he did. His father was just gone. His mother was worked in a um, house of prostitution, and and you know he was such a loner.
0: And he went down to work in Storyville when he was a, a kid. He I know.
1: Him. It seems to me when when I looked at his life, everyone took advantage of him. The first women who married him, the the uh, uh, his managers, and and people would go, yeah, but he chose the managers. He was the only one, like Miles had education, Thelonius had education. The two of them, no matter yeah. what, they were both at Juilliard, even if they left, okay? Um, Duke Ellington came from a, a he, he was in a higher position and had a uh, exactly. more education. The only one who didn't was Louis. And for yeah. him to have done what he did in his life.
0: And Charlie Parker, too. Yes. Charlie Parker yes. had it rough. But Charlie Parker's mother was very protective of him.
1: Right. And
0: Thought that his shit didn't stink. That was the uh, that's the impression I'm getting from this book that I'm listening to.
1: I was amazed and blown away by the the people who talked about jazz and the Ken Burns. I,
0: I loved it. He was great, though. Gibbons was great. Yes. Another influence of mine. Now that I'm thinking back to my life at uh, on Gep Circle, was that there were stacks of New Yorker magazines on every coffee table and in the bathroom, and I remember reading. Whitney Balliott, who was the jazz critic for The New Yorker during that period, who wrote beautifully, eloquently oh, yeah. about music. And that, combined with my father's listening to it every day, I think really set me up for a lifetime of appreciation. And I think that jazz is, I mean, it's never going to be a lost art, but you got to be turned on to it by someone. People don't find it on their own anymore.
1: So talking about the difference in uh How we were parented versus how parenting is now. What are the differences that you see? Or are there any? Maybe there aren't, really.
0: Maybe there aren't. Because I was so rarely, uh, I mean, I, I kid, I always kidded my mother that she broke this wooden spoon on my butt. She claims it never happened. But I, of course, remember it that way. And my father threatened me, but never hit me, so... It wasn't any of that physical violence that happens in a lot of happened, I think, during that period. Because I was born in 1952, and I think it was, you know, it was a rougher time. So, i I felt uh,
1: they were always supportive of what you were choosing to do as well. Yes,
0: exactly. When I went to Penn State, I, I went in thinking I wanted to be a psychiatrist, so I went. I was going to be a psych major, and I ended up finding my way to the theater. And most of the people who were theater majors at Penn State had parents who couldn't wait for them to find, quote unquote, a real major or a real job or a real, you know what I'm saying? You know, that, that yeah. kind of, we've experienced with, with those people our, our entire careers. My dad had a philosophy that the most important thing about a career was that you really loved what you did, the way he did Hemingway and Faulkner and Joyce, and that that example that he set. Made his work look like it wasn't work, even though he worked his ass off.
1: Oh, that's beautiful.
0: And then I was lucky enough that I didn't spend a lot of time as a walk-up king and as the worst waiter in the history of New York City, and I was able to start to make a living at it. And and when I was broke, I another guest spot would show up, and it was. And so I was. I've been blessed and lucky my entire career, and it started by by the philosophy that my dad had, that the most important thing about a career was that you really loved what you did. People tell their kids that, but a lot of people don't want their kids to be actors, that's for sure.
1: Right, right. And
0: I didn't, and I don't, I didn't want our kids to be actors. Really? Well, look at it, you know, Jeannie's a huge success. I've been very successful. The odds of two of us having a child who would then also be successful, I mean, it's hard enough to have success. So I'm thrilled that Eliza's sort of focusing more on 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 writing. Yeah, and we'll see we'll see what happens. But uh, when she wanted to be an actor, really wanted to be an actor, I remember her saying, "Could you guys just be a little more encouraging and we said, <laughs> You know, we 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 know we know how rare it is to to be able to count on making a living doing this. Right. Anyway, right. I digress.
1: Uh, but so how did you get your first agent?
0: Ah, uh, when I was at the Loeb Drama Center, not at grad school, a commercial agent came up to see something that I was in. But it wasn't see CB. It was to see my friend John Sheeran, who was running the Loeb, who also was on The Doctors. Margo Martindale was up there. Max Wright was up there. It was one of those companies that was filled with equity actors. And then they they put non-equity journeymen in, you know, that kind of summer stock vibe. Yep. Uh, yep. an agent named Tex Bea, who was a woman from Texas, who was a commercial agent said, when you come to New York, come to my office. And she did. And she started to send me out and I went out maybe seven, eight, 10 times a week for commercials for months and never, ever got them. And I was, you know, I thought, how is this possible? They said, now you got to go out for a lot of auditions. How do you do with commercials? Did you ever make a lot of money on commercials?
1: Uh, I did, but I didn't, I did other stuff before I did commercials. And I, then I was, so I was in New York and it was somebody who, who booked me and, and I actually made a, a lot of money in commercials. I did uh, that, Sarah Lee Croissant, I did a, um, an a Oil of Olay commercial and I don't know, a bunch of things. And I, I, then I just wanted to stop doing them. But it's hard. It's hard. You have to I, do about 60 I, auditions before you
0: score one. <laughs> yeah, but I did hundreds of auditions before I scored one, and I never wanted to stop doing those, but I never seemed to get them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of feeling that way with voiceover stuff. It's really tricky, and, and, you know, it, you're just—now it's so hard for actors because we have to know how to do our own lighting, our own editing, our own—you uh, know, we have to find someone who's going to read with us. It, it's yeah. complicated.
0: It is. It, the games have changed. It's a hard that voiceover world is hard to crack.
1: It's very hard to crack. Did you ever study improvisation and do improvisation?
0: Only as part of my acting uh training in the okay. when I was getting my MFA, but never never with anybody in New York.
1: Who was your best teacher and what were the methods you were taught?
0: I was lucky there was a triangle, a triumvirate of teachers at Penn State who had all left New York. Um Richard Edelman. Ooh had taught at the... Act, um, yeah, he's... Richard Edelman had taught at the Neighborhood Playhouse. Archie Smith had taught at the Actress Studio. And uh, Manuel Duque taught downtown at... Um, what's her name? Who wrote the cookbook? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there were three different schools <laughs> of acting. And and, and uh, from them, I stole and learned and, and uh, brought into my... You know everything that I learned from them, I still use wow. today when I break down a script as a director. Or not everything, but all the things that worked for me, all the, right. the where the beats are, what the intentions are. I write down the action verbal. I, I all the stuff that I remember using or that I felt worked for me, I still use and I still share when I try to give notes to actors
1: when Ken Burns was saying how jazz came out of it, it was this time for freedom and people were restless and all, you know, he described it so brilliantly and, yeah. as did the critics of what was going on. And you were breaking rules, the rules that had been there. And then I was looking at what did our show come out of? And I was looking at, we had the challenger explosions, Chernobyl computers coming out, right. right. And, and cell phones happening. Um, First test tube baby, uh, the royal marriage, the dream wedding of Charles and Diana that didn't work out. Uh, I mean, we had, and we had terrorism that was happening on our, on uh, in Oklahoma bombing and the the World Trade Center. I mean, what an interesting! <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I started to just look at what had happened in like the eighties and nineties. It, yeah. it's amazing. And uh, and the sh- and when I checked on what were the popular shows, it was Friends, Law and Order, and Star Trek TNG, and that that's like kind of mind blowing.
0: Do you think there's a connection to those shows?
1: I do. I think there's a connection to all th- in all three of the shows. I mean, it's like it seems to me, Friends, there's like we're just we're, we're just being with our friends, and we're we're not thinking about all of this other bad, terrifying stuff going on in the world. Right. Law and Order is. It's going to be solved. It's all going to be right. Justice is going to be served. Right. Okay?
0: Excellent. Yeah. Uh,
1: not always. I mean, sometimes it wasn't served, but most of the time it was. Uh huh. Um, and and then our show. I mean, it's kind of clear that we were like a message that we're not all going to die tomorrow. Um, you know, there is a future. Number one, and uh, and all of that that other stuff going in with it. I just was shocked to realize how much more. Like with computers. Yeah. I mean, that was happening. You know, our kids got cell phones. (laughs) We didn't have that kind of communication.
0: That's an interesting, uh, that's a really good point of view. I had never put that together. That's an excellent, evolved way to look at uh, what was going on.
1: Do you think it's harder for our kids to, I feel I've changed so much in terms of who I think I am and who I thought I was going to be. And I look at the kids today just seems so hard for them. I don't know. What do you oh, think about that?
0: I, I think uh, harder than ever now. I mean, I've, I, I wouldn't, I keep thinking about this pandemic that the, the people who are suffering and missing the most are kids like six years old who are about to enter kindergarten and have that first wonderful social complicated, what's it like to intermingle with, you know, 30 kids. And the kids who are just heading off to college, that great first yeah. uh, semester of college somewhere where you're, you know, free for the first time, living out of the house for the first time. Those kids, all those kids got screwed by this pandemic. I know. And th- they'll never have that opportunity.
1: Yeah, that is so tragic to me. It, it really is, because that's life-changing. And then I worry that we're all going to be doing just zooms endlessly for the rest of our lives, and oh. I'm going to be in some little room taping myself trying to get a, a job <laughs> somewhere. I'm a I little mean, zoomed out. It's
0: hard. I'm a little zoomed out.
1: Yeah, that's why when they said, "Do you want to have? Uh, do you want to see Jonathan when you do it?" I said, "No, no, no. I can. I, I. I know what Jonathan looks <laughs> like. Let me just. Let me just hear it. I, I wanted. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs>
1: I, I just wanted to focus a little bit more. Well, um, let me
0: tell you something before we finish up.
1: Yeah. Okay. You,
0: you've made you've made this really easy. Oh. The conversation just. Flew. I I do a lot. I've done a lot of these now because this is you know this has become a popular genre. And the just talking, well, it helps that we know each other <laughs> yeah. this well and this long. But it's. Um, I think you've done a great job.
1: Oh, thank you, Johnny. That means a lot. Thank you.
0: You're welcome.
1: All right. We'll have. um,
0: And I heard I was the first one. Yeah. I had no idea I was the the guinea pig for this thing.
1: Yep. You're the guinea pig. Thank you very much for being the guinea pig. Ah, I love you. My
0: pleasure. I'll see you soon. I hope. Bye bye.
1: Bye. Since our conversation, Jonathan has directed new episodes of Leverage and Star Trek Discovery. Self-quarantining before and after all travel and staying healthy and social distanced on both sets. He's amazing, I know. Dr. Crusher would have been so proud. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please tune in next week for a new episode where I will investigates with another space friend. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.